This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Um, I, I sort of semi-apologize again that I, I speak more here than any place else probably because simply it's my heritage, it's my legacy, but it's everybody's in a certain sense. So we, we spoke about... Um, like when we spoke in Volozhin about two different things coinciding, the, the, the Rabbanim and the Yeshivas, really there are two things here, there's Kavna and Slabatka, and both of them are, are two worlds, and it's important to have a sense of each one. Kavna represented a sort of old time, and like you see the, the, here, um, a, a very strong identification with Yiddishkeit. The, 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 the Litvish Yid was a very controlled, his emotions were controlled, but they were deep. They, 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 were, they, were very, they had very strong and deep emotions, a very strong sense of tradition, a strong sense of respect, a bit of skepticism and cynicism, and not, you know, it, it, certain, you know tradition meant a lot. Digduk halacha did not mean much. And Kovner represented the big city, the people who were, had gone to universities, had not gone to yeshivas, people who basically weren't, they didn't believe in the detailed obligation of, of Tayyar and Alacha, but had strong Yiddish identification. And that's why you'll see the signs in Yiddish here. He speaks Yiddish. Um, there's, a, there's a desire to keep a shul like this. And, and you know, it, even they didn't make the changes. Reform did not have a really foothold here. The, the drastic changes in the shuls they were not into. There was a sense of keeping things with a certain you know, dignity and so on and so forth. Um, the Rabbanim in the big cities tried dearly to, you know, they basically were keeping Kehillas going and World War I knocked it out. Um, there's an article I have about Vilna and he says that this, the difference was incredible. Many people were not into keeping kosher anymore, but everything was kosher. So you ate kosher, you did kosher, and that was it. But during World War One, they had to eat treif. There was nothing else to eat. There was starvation. There was no rabbanim. Everything was was hefka. If you get used to three or four years of 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 um, treif and meat, you no longer had that sentimental attachment to kosher. You no longer had a red line against bringing treif chaza. So they didn't eat chaza, but but everything else they ate without shchit and nevelas and so on and so forth. Chol Shabbos. Before World War One, it was it was not the norm to be chashavs. During the war, the Germans forced people to keep the stores open, b'cholu, b'cholu. and then, so after the war, between before World War I and after World War I, in places like Coven and Vilna, were drastic changes. Um, because the Kehillah had become disbanded, because the Rabbanim were no longer, had, didn't have a grip on the Kehillah, they came back after five, six years, uh, a new generation came, and that was part of the churbim of these places. Um, South Africa, South African Jewry was very typical of um, many Litvish who went there. The South African Litvish Yidin loved to learn. They dropped Shmiras and Mitzvahs in any real sense of the word when they came there. The shuls in the community was orthodox. When you came to a shul, you came to an orthodox shul. That was your shul. And there was a sense of respect. I told, I told over before in the bus, I was there last year. And the, the rabbi there, Rabbi Goldstein, has made these, you know, Shabbos for everybody. In America, it's very difficult to get going. In South Africa, the rabbi said how they should do it. People who are not shame and mitzvahs, 
everyone comes, they don't drive, and they sleep over in a building, in a school building, because the rabbi said that's where you do Shabbos. And I'll pull up an anecdote, but I was there last year, and I was speaking for a group of students who were totally not from. And it's called uh, Awesome. It's Aisha Toros, uh, Kirov, um, you know, whatever it is. So I took a look around. It was a, late at night. It was left a long day for me, and it looked like after a long night for them. Nobody was in the mood. So I said, I'll take questions and answers. So nobody volunteered. So I said, let me ask you some questions. I'm interested in things. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I said, why do you belong to a Jewish organization? So they thought a minute, the girl stepped up and she said, we all went to Jewish schools, we have common identification with certain basic Jewish things, and that keeps us, that's our common denominator. So I said, tell me three things that you feel are basic Jewish traits. So she said, caring for each other, okay, that, that I would have heard in America, I would have heard anywhere else. The second thing she said was respect. And I said, wow. I said, in America, that's a four-letter word. I mean, what do you mean respect? You, 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 you question. You, 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 and I can class is, 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 is a hero, not somebody who's traditional and respects. And, and I told her, you know, I learned something from you. And it's true. You, you, you get a certain, a rav gets a deference and a certain sense of this is how it should be, which, which, which is very helpful in certain circumstances. That was the neshama of... That was a little sheet. The 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 the, the, um, the video that he has of the person sing, saying of Vino Malkeinu, it, it's it's heart wrenching. It, it's that type of deep regish. I don't know what this person was doing, was doing, but 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 you know the the the, the, the panemius of the person is incredible. Um, I was in Phoenix many years ago. There was an old Irat English. So, okay, first day. There was an old little sheet who was in his 90s, I forgot his name, obviously, I don't remember. And they told me, come into shul early and watch him come in and daven. Watch him come. So he comes in before davening. This is a weekday davening. And he stands by the door and he says, you know, Vani b'reiv chastecha, ovo b'isecha, shtach v'adich kotshecha, shtach b'yirosecha. And, and he trembled and he jumped in. And I, wow. Um, later on, he, he used to lay for them. They realized that on Shabbos, it's impossible that he walks 10 miles from where he lives. And so they, you know, he said, listen, I've kept Shabbos longer than all you together. You know, you're all 20 years old, five of you. And, and, and he, and they got him an apartment next to the show. But there was a certain panemistic erection. That's why Chabad appealed that type of, you know, not to be, sentimentally awash, but to focus a very deep inside identification. That was, that was a litvishy, that was the, now let's switch to, so, so in a certain sense, there was a process of degeneration setting in, and people were going less to study yeshivas, they were studying universities, there was less and less and less Yiddishkeit and Dikta Gemitzvah and so on and so forth. Rabbi Sosalanta, people don't realize his, his, if you to ask yourself, what is the shorish of what he was trying to do? The answer was Kirov. He realized things are falling apart. He started with Musa. That was his primary mean. But he did many other things. He wanted to translate the Talmud into German or French. I don't remember which one. He spent, he spent his last years living in France, Germany. And people were very upset. People didn't know what happened. And he gave a marshal. He said, 
when a horse and a wagon are going downhill, if you try to stop them, you will. If you if you put the brakes on, like like we heard yesterday, you go flying over. But if you once they're downhill, you can slowly get them uphill. He said Poland, Russia, and and Lita are going downhill. I can't do much over there in Germany and France. The rock bottom. Maybe I can lift them up. So Rabbi Saul was really, in a certain sense, he was interested in the Jewish Renaissance, and that's why Musa was primarily going to be a movement for Balabatim. They would reconnect emotionally with Yiddishkeit. That's really, if you if you if you, if you look and read and see what he says, Rabbi Saul Salanta's own mitzias. He was such a gadol b'tayra. Such such a brilliant gadol, he was so beloved, respected, that nobody would say things about him or against him. So Rabbi Shol Salanta himself never got opposition. The one that they, when they wanted to speak Rabbi Shol Salanta, they spoke of Rabbi Shol um, or, or sometimes the Alta. But Lemaisa, Rabbi Shol Salanta, Rabbi Salanta formulated his Muslim movement, and he came to Kovna to make his Muslim. That's that was the first place we really made one. But before that. The Alta Slabotka was born in 18, uh, I have it down, 49. He was born in, in a small town and he, he was a younger man. He was in his early 20s when somebody got him to meet the Alta Kelm. He heard the Alta of Kelm and he spent the whole night, he said, crying on his pillow and he was a different person. He became a Balmusa. He looked at the Alta Kelm as a Rebbe of his. They together made different things. They made a tamator and, gr- and, and gravine and other things. They split. They didn't see eye to eye on certain things. Not clear what, whatever it was. They were two big people. They didn't see eye to eye. And the altar came to Kovna. And he's now the altar Slabotka, his first meter was, it's my wife's great grandfather. His first meter was that he was um, totally hidden. He was hidden, remained hidden. No one knows anything about his biography. No one knows anything about him. Anything that he said, it's because he wanted people to hear. He had no... Most people need to talk to, to get something off their chest, to, to get recognition, to get acknowledgement. You, you're a person. He wasn't. He, nothing that he ever said um, was had any reason unless it was to get somebody to do something, to tell somebody something. That was him. His Talmudim... We never knew anything about him. And then his biography is, is skimpier than skimpy. And they talk about the yeshivas. He, he was extraordinarily, he was a person who was extre- an extreme strategist. He came to Kovna and he slowly began. He first started with a little bit of a kolel. Then there was a, a, a yeshiva for young boys of Herschel Levitan. And um, I think it was called Reb Hirsch the my father, That's my father used to... That's what they spoke about. He had a yeshiva young boys. The altar started speaking to the boys. And that slowly became a feed for yeshiva. Um, he, 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 every place there was something going on, the altar put a foot in, and he slowly began to draw the threads together. Now, you have to understand this was incredibly pressing. I mean, people didn't realize how everything was going to fall apart. It was still the, the end of the 1800s, mid, mid to end of the 1800s, but it was, he realized it's, it's falling apart. It's not going to work. You have to reconstruct the yeshiva. 
And he slowly began building Slavaki Shiva through the kolo that he had. He had them learn with some of the boys. The boys became older. He started making a group. And slowly it evolved into the yeshiva. This was in 18, uh, I, I think the official date for when the yeshiva is founded is 1877. That's the kolo. And he brought in Reb Itzalapanavija to be Rosh Hashiva. That was in 1889. Reb was a, a sort of Reb Chaim-like personality. He was Mechadish Torah that was extremely attractive. Baruchim liked it. Slowly began building the yeshiva. And this is typical of him as he built the yeshiva. No one knew what his job was. No one knew exactly what he was doing. Um, the Rosh Hashiva was one person. The, the Mashkev was the second person. The, the, this was that. This was that. And he, and he was the behind-the-scenes boss. He raised the money. He had a lot of money came from somebody named Vadi Lachman. He had money coming in. He brought the money, took responsibility. He brought in people to yeshiva, kept people out of yeshiva. And it was, it was like one of these things where he had no... That's why they called him the Alta. There was nothing else to call him. There, there was no other title because he had no official title in yeshiva. So he was everything and nobody. Um, Rabbi Moshe Marot was the official of yeshiva later on. And, and But slowly he began weaving the yeshiva into a yeshiva. His principles were he took Rosh Yeshiva as our attractive for Bachram. Like the same way the Chavaz Chaim took Rav Toli, he took Rabbi Salpanovich, he then took Rabbi Shemarot and Rabbi Zalman. He looked for Rosh Yeshivas that would attract Bachram with the Nudar Halimut. He understood that you need that. He, he put a Ruach of Musa, people learn Musa, and he worked with the Bachram one by one. He especially was focused on Balakishonas. He felt that they would become the, 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 the next star of, of Manhikim Dolim. And he, 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 with each one, he had a different agenda. Some of them he let do things, some he didn't let do things, some he pulled back, some he pushed. He was incredibly astute in knowing how to deal with each one. That's why, if you look at a specific derech, it's hard to say there because some some bachrim he let go to he let them go to university quietly. My father told me that if Huth is going to university for a few months, he felt again. My father said, "I can't tell you for sure," but the altar it was a nod and a wink of the altar because the altar felt he would lose him without that. So by sort of giving him the sense that he's royal to go and this and that, he got over it and came back. Those are the type of things that the altar could think of. Who needs to be told no way and who needs to be told yes because he's going to come back and, and, and it would go wrong the other, other now. A big event occurred at the end of the, of the 1890s, 1898, 99, 97, those years. Musa was something that was a new movement. The Bachrim who were affected by it did, did not like it. In other words, there were Bachrim, there's Merachik because of it, and, you know, that whole thing. And in the yeshiva, they developed an opposition to it. And they brought things to a head by getting Rabbanim involved. Rabbanim also didn't see it always by Anyafa. So as long as Yibitzel was alive, Yibitzel he wasn't affiliated with the Muslim, but he felt he, he trusted the people and he felt whatever it is, it's good. His son did not see it that way, and Rev. Hirsch Rabinowitz was the Rav at this time already, and he called an Asif of Rabbanim and he invited Rev. Nelson Svi Finkel and Abitzel Petterberger to come and defend Musa. So they got, the Rabbanim got up, they lambasted Musa, and then they asked him to reply. Abitzel Petterberger got up and he said, Good night, everybody. And the altar nodded, and they walked out. And the altar was a little bit upset with Rebbe. said, why didn't you talk to him? Rebbe was a noted on Chacham. The altar hid his learning. Rebbe had written as far as when he was Chacham. 
He said, I'm not a chassan bachad. I didn't need to hear the Joshua to see how, how much I'm worth. They both decided there's no point in arguing because um, no one's listening. They've made up their mind. Nothing else they convinced them. They got up and they left the yeshiva. They got up and walked out. The majority of Bachim remained and they took 70 Bachim went with them and they, and they remade a new yeshiva. Um, they named the new yeshiva Knesset Yisrael after Yisrael Salanta and the old yeshiva was Knesset Yitzchak after Yitzchakhanah. The altar had to rebuild from scratch, but he didn't want to make machlokas, so he rebuilt from scratch. They wanted the yeshiva, take the yeshiva. I'm, I'm, I'm there to build. And he rebuilt from scratch. He allowed Baruchim, they took Rebbe Ochber as a yeshiva of Knesset Yitzchak. He allowed Baruchim to go hear him. Rebbe Ochber was Karshkrashim by him. And vice versa, he would be on the lookout for Baruchim from Knesset Yitzchak that, would, that he would pull in you know, to the Muslims and so on and so forth. And both yeshivas coexisted before World War I. After World War I, the Knesset Yitzchak never came back again. Rebbe Ochber went off, you know, through all the, the, the Gullahs, and he went off, and that was that. So, um, it's, so that was the yeshiva until World War One. World War One, the yeshiva um, scattered. It, they went off to Minsk first. Minsk was a big place where a lot of yeshivas went to. That was like the first, like I told you, the, because they had the forts around Kovna, the, the, the Tsar was especially very, very um, nervous that the Jews should be there, and that's why he sent them off. That was the, the um, you know, so he sent the Jews, he pushed exile them. He took the Jews, put them in trains. My father remembers it, remembered it. And my father told me almost every stop that the train stopped, the Jews of the communities came and they brought them food and drink. And, and he could see them wiping away tears like they, they were very much of Bitsaran. It was incredible. Then they went first to that, they ended up in Kremlin Sukh. They, they, were, they were pushed far into, into Russia. Some ended up in Ukraine, it, it, different Kufis of where it was safer and less safe. They came back and the yeshivas had to rebuild again. There were other, like we spoke in the beginning, there were a lot of problems because some people had stayed and so on and so forth. The yeshiva regrouped, rebuilt, and it's reached its heydays like every other yeshiva in the 20s. Most of the famous names you heard were from the 20s. And, and probably he had a hand in almost every yeshiva that there was in, in what we call Lita. He was an incredible person. He helped build Tel's yeshiva before he even had Slabotka. He built Slabotka. His son, Rabbi Zidl, went to the Mir. His, he sent 14 Barachim to start Kletsk. He helped Rabbi Shimon in, in Malchin and Bryansk. He, he wanted, A, there should be more Torah. B, he felt that by bringing in the right people, they would spread Mus everywhere. Of the Rosh Yeshivas in America, Reb Aaron Kotler was a brilliant beyond words person. He wavered. In other words, he was a Yasim and, and his family wanted him to go study university. The altar had 101 tricks how to get him to stay. He got him to stay, was, spent all his focus on him, and Reb Aaron Kotler brought her to America. He helped build Tel Shiva. He, he, um, the mirror was Reb Lezir himself wasn't a Balmusa per se, but he understood that the yeshiva needs Musa, and he always had a mashkir, he created that environment to have Musa. Um, Ner Yisrael of Rudiman is his, Chaim Berlin is his, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky is his Talmud. It's hard to think of anything of Torah today that's not him. And nobody knows anything about him. He, 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 he was a totally anonymous person when it came to himself. Um, he lived for 30 years without his family. 
He left his family in Kelm. He, he, he was in Slabotka, covenant to devote himself totally to the cause, and he would come home for Yontem. That was it. I don't know what, what, what happened for 30 years, why he put what, whatever it was, but that was his person. In 1925, the government made, they had a, a draft, an army draft, that they used to pat Yeshiva Bachram. They stopped patting Yeshiva Bachram in 1925, and they realized they can't. I mean, going to the army in those days was suicide. It was horrendous. The, the, the conditions were horrendous. Yiddishkeit was impossible. It was horrible. So, and there are just so many Bachram that could, that could pass off as cripples. You know, you know, there's just how many, just how many Bachram could manage to get out. So he took a group of Bachram to Eretz Yisrael, together with Moshe Epstein, and they founded Chavin Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. They all lived till 1927, and was Nifta, and that's that branch of it. Staying in Slabotka, Rabbi Zikshar came back, that was a son-in-law of his. But Vrangudzhensky was a Talmud Muvok, he came back as Mashkiach, and they led the yeshiva until the war. Vrangudzhensky was killed at Kirsh Hashem, and we'll see in the seventh, fourth, and in, in one of the two, two, two places. Uh, no, they burnt, sorry, they burnt the hospital down with him together. Um, that my, uh, my father comes there, unfortunately. And, um, and uh, Rabbi Zikshar made it to Eretz Yisrael and started Slabotka Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. Al-Kaponim, there's a post in Kahelas, it says that there was a city that was enclosed, that was surrounded and circled, and a Chacham Echad came, and he saved the city of Chachma, and, and nobody remembered the person. And everybody asked, how could it be that somebody saves the whole world and nobody remembers him? So people do know the Alta Slabotka, the name is famous, but his own wish was to have nothing of himself ever public, and that's pretty much Mekuyim. Um, he did not, um, nothing about his own personal life, his own real thoughts, um, or, or there. Now, I just saw something we were talking about um, at the table about Tishabov and the Rimichaber was about, about uh, Sinas Chinam. I, I just happened to see recently the Alta said a shmuz about Tishabov. He said, you know, Tishabov because of Sinas Chinam. And because, you know, so on and so forth. He said, so on Tishabov during Kinnis, instead of calling on you to do Arzal they call somebody else to do Arzal So you Eishlahava on the Gabai, Eishlahava on the person that took away the Arzal from you, and you're, so he said, so that's, that's really where people are. His Musa Shemuzin, basically, they were tremendous draw. Most of them were very, very, um, very, very clear descriptions of what people's emotions are like, their mindset. You almost could read minds. Um, let me add maybe just another because I mentioned the story. One of the Litvish Tchunis was dignity was very important. Honor was also very important. And people were very sensitive to slights to honor. That was part of Litvish um, mindset. So if you got a lesser aliyah, it was somebody's putting you down, somebody that, and that's where the altar put a lot of focus. All of the shittas you hear about the altar, about that he liked the Bachram to be spiffy and to be dressed and to be nice and so on and so forth, very unclear. He was meticulously clean, he was meticulously dignified, but the shtariness of the Bachram, that probably was because he felt that the Bachram needed it. Um, everybody else, university Bachram, Bachram University, his students walked around stolz with a big chup and, and you know, this golden glasses and looking very, very chashev. He felt it was important. Did he believe that's what he should be? 
No way to know. He himself did not. He, he wasn't into the latest model of suits or whatever it is. He was very clean, very dignified, meticulously so. But um, what he felt about, the, the, he felt it was important. And, and whatever you saw in yeshiva, the only thing you knew about it is that he held it's important for the dog. I'll compare him so in many ways. So Volozhin is like the first layer of the floor of the yeshivas, the basic concept of people coming together, having a, a, a rav, um, learning and learning b'chavrusin. Slabotka is the closest to what we have, that there's a certain proactive reaching out to Bachram. The Mesechtas that were learned, that would encourage the most competitiveness, the type of interaction where there's a guiding hand from the top to try to shape and mold Bachram, bring it to a certain place, that was his. And the idea that Musa is part of Yeshiva, bringing in the right type of Bachram to see the yeshiva so that, that it grows around it. That was him. And came out everything that went into the other yeshivas, it either, it either mirrored what he said or he was behind it somehow. That's, so it, it's incredible that this person, in a sense, um, saved Torah. This was the next generation of Torah. The next generation of Torah did not reflect the old school, not reflect Volazhin. reflected him, the, 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 the flavor of the yeshiva, the tzur of the yeshiva, the, the content of the yeshiva. Everything about it was... A reflection of, of the altar's molding of it. That's um, and 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 it saved a Lithuanian jury was only open to that. Uh, about how keeping mitzvahs no longer worked anymore. You needed to have whatever it is that he, that he brought. And, and so, in a certain sense, Kovna was a big city, but Slabotka is where life, where Yiddish life came from, and and this is where what we have today, the Almatorik, is is from there. Okay. Golden Legacy, a collection of essays. Yeah. Um, about, I think it's about Rita Levitt.